Welcome to The Scoop. I'm Dinah Jansen. In this segment, we chat with Professor Jonathan Smallwood from the Department of Psychology here at Queen's University, who has been involved in a research study with several British universities on the impact of prolonged social isolation and changes to work opportunities on people's thought patterns. Like Canada, the first UK lockdown caused huge disruption to people's social and work lives. And as part of the study, researchers analyzed people's thought patterns to see what effect these changes had on our everyday thoughts and learned more about the important role our social and working lives play in shaping what we think and how we think and as we go about our daily lives. And with us now to chat about this study and its implication is Dr. Jonathan Smallwood. Welcome, Jonathan, to CFRC today. Hi, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for joining us. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your research in the Department of Psychology. I, I, I have learned just now that you're a very new faculty member in the department. Yes, I mean, I suppose we, like I, I got offered the job just before the lockdown actually began. So we moved here during the... I guess basically we arrived in September last year, so there was it was just a, a tiny bit open then, <laughs> and obviously it's been intermittently locked down since then, and so it's been quite exciting to get to know Kingston through that um, lens. But I guess the work that I do is really to do with trying to understand the organisation of cognition, and we use um, I suppose lots of people are trying to do that. The thing that probably makes the work that we do slightly more different to a lot of other studies is that we try to use patterns of thought described by introspection as a tool in this and trying to answer this question. So the study that were that we published in PNAS on the lockdown, um, in that case, basically we looked at how people's thinking changed because they were because of the behavioral changes that the lockdown in, included. And we looked at whether or not some or all of those changes could be could be explained by changes in the sorts of things people did during the day because of the stay-at-home order. Mm -hmm. All right, so tell us a little bit more about the study itself and and its motivations. Well, I mean, I guess probably at one level, the motivation was quite pragmatic, which was that we'd already conducted a study where we'd looked at thoughts and thought patterns in daily life. Mm -hmm. um, and then one of my PhD students, Bronte McEwen, basically, I mean, her project was supposed to scan people whilst they looked at videos. And obviously, in-person testing became impossible. So what we really needed to do was to find another thing that the students could work on. And this, so Bronte had the idea to look and see how experience sampling patterns would have changed because of the changes that happened in the UK because of the stay-at-home order. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess the thing that makes probably our study interesting and, and, and helpful is that, you know, some people have been studying things happening in COVID to understand COVID itself, right? Mm -hmm. But I guess the thing that probably makes our study a little bit different to that is it's not that we were really studying COVID. What we were really understanding was how the changes that happened because of COVID changed how people's day-to-day -day thoughts are also changing. And that's probably a different way to think about it is that that's a way of using something like the lockdown to get at something that's really to do with people. Mm -hmm. 
Now, how did you find yourself uh, involved in the project? Uh, it, I, were you coming in solely as a uh, doctoral candidate supervisor? Or uh, I understand that there are several universities uh, involved in this project. Where are you in this project and how did you find yourself involved? So, so basically, what, what the, the it was kind of like the so I I was at one of the universities before I came here, yeah. basically. So at York was where I um was when they offered me the position here so what 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 that study really was was the kind of like the, the very last thing we did you know before i came here really mm-hmm. so I, mean, I guess like my role probably is just like like i'm the oldest probably <laughs> so the, the other the other people are more um youthful and you know like i just probably help them I, 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 my work is probably as the sort of wiser person who helps the people do the analysis and they helps them think about how to understand that, you know, in the most important way. Okay. So sage mentorship. <laughs> well, I mean, as you get older in, in science, that definitely ends up being something that's kind of tends to be more, you do that more, I think, basically. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So let's hear a little bit more about how the study itself was conducted. Can we hear more about the, the methodology and the science on the ground? Sure. I mean, so basically what, I guess that the, the, the piece of the puzzle that's probably um, what, what we were really trying to do before COVID happened was we were just trying to understand how it's possible to categorize people's thinking and the technique that we used to do, as I said, is experience sampling. And that allows us to do quite clever things in the sense that we can use experience sampling and then people will answer the questions. With, and, and when they answer the questions, what they're doing is they're putting... They, they, they give back a pattern, basically, mm-hmm. like a waking, like, you know, this time I was thinking more about the future, I was thinking about myself, and we we can basically utilize those patterns in quite clever ways. So, for example, the studies we'd done before we did this one had been looking at how it was organized, how those patterns related to brain organization. So, you know, we would basically be able to identify that when people say they're focused in a deliberate way in a task, the brain looks more like this. And then this study, basically, the, the, the starting point was really just trying to say, well, what we know how the things happen when we measure the brain in the scanner, but there's a weakness to that approach as well as all the strengths. And the weakness is basically that you have to lie in a tube in a room. You're not really able to move freely. So we don't really know how generalizable the thought patterns that we get from that controlled environment, where obviously there are lots of advantages, like we can see brain activity, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also slightly artificial. So the starting point for the study had really had been, let's just run an experiment where we take the same questions that we know about the brain patterns associated with, and let's look at how they happen in daily life. And that's part of a long-term um, research program that I'm continuing here, which is really just trying to map both, like you can think about like laboratory studies give you control over your key variables. Mm-hmm but they're not very ecological. So the kind of the umbrella goal of all the research I'm going to do at Queen's is to just be able to try to, 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 to exploit those two aspects of experimentation, sort of ecological validity in the real world, experimental control in a laboratory setting. And if we can map across those two situations, we can basically start sort of like you get the best of both worlds because you see the thought patterns that really take place in the real world and you might be able to guess how they, they manifest in the brain but because of covid um obviously we had to kind of like shortcut and change direction a little bit so we already had this data that allowed us to look at how people thought in the real world 
And what we could just do is repeat the experiment in different people, but under the lockdown conditions. And then that allowed us to look and see how these thought patterns change in their prevalence. So the first thing we identified was that there were two quite powerful changes. One of them was an absence in the lockdown data of people thinking a lot about other people. Mm. And another one was an absence of people thinking in a, about problems in a goal-directed, deliberate way. But what then the student who ran the analysis did, Bronte, was she looked to see whether the activities that people were performing could explain those changes. And what we found was that basically the, the, um, the pattern of social cognition was basically present in COVID, but only when they were interact, only when you were given the opportunity to interact with another person. And obviously what that means is that because we didn't do that so much, on average, there was a reduction in that type of thinking. And then the other pattern of thinking we, did, we identified, which was to do with deliberate goal-directed thought, that seemed to be absent from COVID lockdown, but only on the days when people didn't go to work. So again, because people stopped working and stopped socializing, our data says that quite a lot of the thought patterns we found are related to those changes in behavior that the lockdown caused. Yeah, quite surprising results, I think. I, just uh, thinking about uh, social isolation and missing my friends. And... Yes. Hmm. I mean, it's not that, like, I, I suppose the point here to, to bear in mind is that the pattern that we saw go down was basically a pattern that happens during socialization. So obviously, there were hints in our data that there were changes in how people might imagine other people okay. that's taking place too. It's just that the dominant patterns that we found were really the changes that the absence of these important behaviors gave to a person. Okay. Right? And I guess one of the ways that I think this study ends up being quite important is because it just shows us that there are aspects of our day-to-day -day life that, that, that in a sort of a non-trivial way are determining the types of thinking that we have as we go through our lives. Okay. And one of the things that we're trying to use these data to understand in the future is the possibility that different types of, for example, mental health difficulties may be related to not just changes in how those people are thinking because of the stress they're under, but they might be contributed to by um, changes in their activities. So for example, we know already that things like depression and anxiety are associated with certain types of behavioral avoidance. So for example, anxious people might avoid going outside. Mm -hmm. They might avoid interacting with other people in a social situation. And one of the implications of the study that we're talking about just now is that part of the changes that part of a person's sort of thinking on a day-to-day -day basis is contributed by the behaviors they engage in. So it might be that our method will end up being a very useful way of kind of characterizing the, in a reasonably comprehensive way, the types of thinking that people tend to do in different sort of clinical conditions in the sense that we will be able to tease apart the consequence of stopping socializing right, and how that will change your thinking, as well as the part that might be related to like having, you know, some more enduring anxieties that, that social situations bring. Um, and of course, that would allow us to do things like um, understand changes in, you know, psychiatric symptomology, 
but it would also allow us to test theoretical models. For example, the idea that one important way to, to help people who are having difficulty with their thinking patterns is to start encouraging them to do different types of activities. You know, maybe, you know, unhappy people who are feeling very depressed. There's already existing sort of approaches that assume that one of the things you have to do to, do, to help those people is get them engaged in, in rewarding fun activities. And so our method might be able to kind of chart, you can kind of imagine it might be able to chart kind of like the, 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 the change over time, because you might, what we might see is first of all, change in the activity profile, followed by changing the thinking. And that would be theoretically helpful because it would tell us something about how to help these people get over their difficulties. Okay. So anything else to add before we close today, Dr. Smallwood? Um, I mean, I don't think so. I, mean, I may have waffled on a little bit too much. I don't know what, what you thought. <laughs> no, it's very important for all of us to think about what the impact of social isolation on our, on our, the way we think and the way we work. And, and, uh, and thank you very much for joining us today to talk about this research and the, on the impact of prolonged social isolation, as many of us around the world have experienced over the last year and a half, and how these, uh, uh, what these do in, in terms of our thought patterns. It's really interesting to talk to you today about this. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you for asking to join. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.